Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. A couple of weeks ago, I released a two-part series. I don't know if we can call two parts a series, but two episodes that were part one and part two of what I called Merchants Are From Mars, Vendors Are From Venus. I was proud of that when I first came up with that title back in 2019 for my previous podcast. And when earlier this year, I re-released that episode from 2019 because I still felt like a lot of it had value and a lot was the same. But I also acknowledged that a lot of things have changed in the last three years, not just in the problems that we need to solve on the ground from a fraud perspective and a trust and safety perspective, but also just in the vendor landscape and especially between the pandemic and then the economy in the last few months. Solution providers have inherently felt a lot of pressure, often from investors if they're startups, and that has made some changes to the landscape as well. And so I took the opportunity a couple of weeks ago to record two episodes of really talking about that from a 2022 perspective. And I recognized in the second half of the episode that despite the title, it seems like I had so many more notes for the seller side of fraud technology than I did the buyer side at the time. And I've definitely reflected on that more since releasing them, not only because I got a few notes and text messages from people, I'm sure you can guess which side of the fence they're on, who pointed it out and said, hey, I was really hoping that you would kind of scold merchants for some of the things they've done or tell them how to be better buyers like you did in the first one. And you didn't. Valid points. I think that especially over the last few years, I've been working with more and more merchants and hearing from them on a very regular basis about not just horror stories, but I'll hear the same frustrations from them over and over again. And it's frustrating to them that the other side or solution providers just don't get it in quotation marks. That's one reason why I started to work with a small handful of solution providers in my consultancy on this. So you might say, well, if you're working with solution providers, wouldn't you see their side too? And I do. But when I'm working with solution providers, it's primarily from the voice of a merchant. It's primarily talking with them about the perspectives and just kind of representing that side and helping them form a strategy that's going to still help them get out the message about their product and what it does and what it can help without crossing some of those lines or some of those pretty bad first impressions that I have seen more than once tank an opportunity that could have been a really good fit. And so that's one of the reasons why I work with solution providers is because I've had several merchants be like, can you just go tell them this? And, you know, it's not ever going to be a, a foolproof thing. I mean, I'm selective about who I work with and, and all of that. So I'm not working with everyone and nor would I have the ability to. But I do see some overarching themes that eventually I would love to find a way to change some of the systems in our industry as far as how solution providers, you know, meet companies, how they first 
reach out to them, how they get their word out, et cetera. I think sometimes just following the traditional SaaS, the software as a service roadmap for marketing and sales and other pieces doesn't do a fraud technology company as much good as it would in other areas of SaaS. And then same on the buyer side, uh, whether you're a merchant or a fintech or a trust and safety, et cetera. It, I think there are some things that could be done to provide you with more ways to learn about these solutions without feeling that pressure right away. There's a long list of things that I hope I can contribute to the industry on in more of a systemic change, but it's not something I can do right away. So, and I have to pick my priorities, just anyone in fraud fighting, you might have, you might see 12 or 20 or 30 potential fires, but you really have to judge what are the ones I can tackle first. And that actually is very true when you're selecting fraud providers too. I mean, there are some solutions that, yeah, it probably would help us, but how much of a lift and is it is it going to help us as much as something else? So all of that background to say that I recognized that I focused more on do's and don'ts for the seller side and the vendor side of fraud technology and KYC and AML technology than I did the buyer side. And one of my favorite listeners and recurring guests reached out to me with some very thoughtful feedback. It was actually a seven point list of some of the advice that they thought of for buyers as they were listening to this most recent edition of Merchanser from Mars Vendors from Venus. And that person was Gil Rosenthal. If you've been listening to Fraudology for a while, Gil, you know that I enjoy speaking with him, not just because I really like him as a person and the way his brain works, but also because he has perspective into fraud for different verticals and industries than I do. So while he and I are in agreement on almost everything from a philosophical perspective and career path and all of that, there are differences on the fintech side of fraud prevention than there are from the e-commerce and marketplace side, which is where I mostly focus. So Gil previously led risk operations at Bluevine, which is a U.S.-focused fintech focused on business, lending, and banking products. And before that, he managed risk teams at PayPal focused on automated fraud prevention. And over the last one and a half or two years or so, he has been an advisor and a consultant working on risk management with neobanks, card issuers, and lenders. So we really have two different perspectives, but often are in agreement. And so a lot of times Gil will think of something that I didn't in the moment and vice versa. And we really enjoy having these conversations anyway. So it's really nice to be able to let you listen in and maybe learn a few things too. So on this episode, Gil and I are going to catch up a little bit for the last two months to see what he was up to since the last time he was on in August of this year. He actually got to go on a month-long international vacation in September, and he shared some of the highlights and one takeaway of that journey and his time off that he really felt resonated with the industry, and I really appreciated that as well, not to mention the little bit of jealousy that he did that, but he prioritized that. And I really admire that. I That is something I would love to be able to do in the next year. But then we kind of got down to brass tacks and we talked about the email that he sent me and 
the points in there and we went through each one and I think that it is so full of practical and tactical advice for people on the buyer's side. I kind of thought of it as we were talking and I think I mentioned it. People get a lot of training to be in sales. They don't get training to be a buyer of technology. And there might be some company policies around how many companies you have to talk to or an RFI spreadsheet that you have to fill out or something, you know, that you need to do with procurement. But when was the last time you saw anyone say, hey, these are the things that a buyer really needs to know and what have you thought about and what else should you do and what are some of the things on the contract? that you have a right to ask about or just all those details. And so that's really what we dove into today, providing advice for anyone in a buying position for fraud technology, whether it's big or small technology, you know, in fraud, trust and safety, KYC, identity, all of those different layers. And as Gil will share, he's coming from the perspective of a former buyer and as a current consultant to buyers. And I have that same perspective from the merchant side. He has it from fintech. So all of his advice, as well as mine, are practical and tactical. And often there are things that he said that he wished he had knew when he first started being a decision maker or when he was at least the stakeholder in charge of narrowing down the options. I really think that this is a interesting conversation for everyone in the industry. Whether you are a buyer, I think definitely you'll be taking notes, but I really think that sellers should be listening too. I think that you'll pick some things up. You may not appreciate all the tips and tricks that we provide, but I think that overall, it also might help you kind of put yourself in the buyer's shoes a little bit. And, oh, that makes sense why this would be important to them or vice versa. So with that, I am going to let you listen in on my most recent conversation with Gil Rosenthal. I have no doubt that you are going to truly enjoy this and I will look forward to speaking with you later this week. Gil Rosenthal, welcome back to Fraudology. I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you very much. It's so great to be back. And thank you as always for hosting Kurtz. Oh, and thank you for your willingness to come on. I always enjoy our conversations and I know that a lot of the listeners do as well, if not all of them. And you've been name checked a few times in recent episodes as well. I know it's Shoshana and others you're thought highly of. And it's fun to talk about different things because while you kind of come more from the fintech side, there are a lot of similarities that that bridge us together in a lot of other ways. A hundred percent. I think at the end of the day, it's the same industry, just different sides of it. It's true. Absolutely. Yeah. And all of the pieces around operations and educating companies internally about risk and vendor selection, as we're going to talk about today and, and other pieces are pretty much the same. You know, maybe the actual way that we look at risk and what we are assessing is different. But everything else, I think it's similar personalities, a similar industry for sure. Yes, I totally agree with that. But I was telling you right before we started recording that I had to look up the last time you were here and I was thinking, oh, it was pretty recently. And then I was like, no, it feels like a long time ago. And I looked it up and it's been just a little over more than two months since you were here last. It feels, like I said, both like a long time ago and not that long ago. What have you been up to? So I actually was fortunate enough to have a very busy few consulting months from June to August. So I took most of September off, 
which was great. I did quite a bit of traveling. I got to see new places. I traveled both with family and by myself. I did things I wanted to do for a while and finally made them a priority and actually did them. So I've had a great month and now I'm back fully energized to, to get to work. I find that very inspiring. I took my first vacation in like five and a half years earlier this summer in July. And I mean, it was a vacation, but we were with family also. And so it's different. And so I definitely think the thought of having a month off both terrifies me because I don't know if I can not work for that long, but also just really sounds awesome. Where did you go? So my dad was celebrating his 70th birthday. So we did together an eight day trip in Ireland where we did some time in Dublin and a road trip. And that was amazing. And then from there we did, I went with him back to my home in Israel, spent some time with family, celebrated his birthday. And then I came back to the US and then I traveled around here a bit more, a bit like Southeast, a bit Northeast, but yeah. Because you're in Pennsylvania, so just kind of around. I, I'm in Pennsylvania, area. so yeah, so <laughs> basically a, a whole bunch of places in driving distance. Yeah, that's amazing. So, what was uh, your favorite place that you went? Uh, I think it was that road trip in Ireland. That, mm. It's just so beautiful. Everything, it's just like everywhere you go, is it's like an amazing view. And here's a castle on a lake. Like mm. that, that was very rewarding experience. Is everything as green as it looks? Everything was very green. We got there. It's like towards the end of like end of summer, beginning mm. of fall, technically. But mm -hmm. from my days in California and end of summer means that everything is yellowish brown. Yeah. <laughs> and here everything was green. It was very, very beautiful. That's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. From my time in Seattle, it was that way too, right? Because everything's dried out. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I know that, you know, listeners over in Great Britain area and all that and UK and Ireland, we have, there's quite a bit of fraud fighters in, in Ireland and Dublin and that all around that area. And I know that just, yeah, I definitely want to be traveling more as well. So that's inspiring for me. I know that you weren't really working, but I also know that fraud fighters can never turn off our brain a hundred percent. But just either personally or professionally, like, did you have any aha moments while being away that, that you can share that were helpful? So I think I did have one. So as we were traveling during that road trip, every time we wanted to take a break, we'd basically open Google Maps and look for the nearest castle ruins and just go there, which usually is like beautifully located on a lake or a river or a top of a hill or because <laughs> that's where apparently you put castles. Because it's safer, right? From yeah intruders or whatever you can see guess, all around <laughs> or because it controls like rivers i guess it's because um, you, you want to have some control over the traffic in the river but that's basically a long way of just saying that i saw a whole bunch of castle ruins and as i was seeing them in one of those i saw a diagram that showed that basically the defenses of the castle were um, intentionally built so that at times of peace the interior of the castle becomes a marketplace Huh. Like that courtyard, yeah, which is within the walls, but not inside the building, right? right? It's basically, that's a marketplace. And then, but then when there's a raid or an attack, that becomes where like all of the farmers and villagers from the nearby area can come in and, and just be safe. Mm. And that like malleability of the castle defenses hmm. made me really think about how we build our own defenses and how a lot of times when we talk about fraud prevention defenses, we talk about building defenses, but we're thinking about them in a static way, meaning we will build this defense and it will stop the bad actors, right? And then there won't be as many bad actors, but the defense will still be there. So if they come back, it's still there, right? Which is very important, but 
maybe we should try to build defenses that have a level of flexibility where in those times of peace, they are refunctioned in some one way or another or readjusted to the actual level of risk that we have. And then when there's an attack, they can spring into place. So it made me start thinking about that as maybe like a more complex construct to how to build risk defenses. Because some of our automation, obviously, if bad actors stop coming in, it doesn't do as much harm anymore. But I do like to good actors. But I think that there's room to take that further. That's the closest I had to like an aha moment. It's like, I really want to think about that more. Yeah. No, I think that that's really important. It first reminded me of, I don't even know how long ago, but one of the, probably one of the first like 30 episodes of Fraudology when I had the CEO of Q6, Ellie Dominance on, he, I had known him for a while and been working with him, but never knew the story behind the name. And he explained that it came from castles and the way that, you know, things were defended at that time and that there were five quadrants of security in a way of the different parts of the castle and the different parts of the lands that they were defending. And that he named his company Q6 because of the sixth quadrant that is even further out. And they do, you know, dark web, deep web intelligence. And so that makes sense. But I think that from your perspective, that flexibility piece is so important. If anyone heard my episode just on this past Thursday, I mean, I was very tired and it was a quick one, but, and hopefully people forgive me for that, but I shared my tried and true zombies and dragons analogy Mm. about fighting fraud. And so as you were talking about the castle and everything, I'm like, I'm wondering if people are hearing this and thinking about zombies trying to attack a castle (laughs) because, you know, two analogies grouped into one, having that flexibility and having whatever that defense is, be able to serve multiple purposes, both in times of peace, meaning like for good customers and keeping them safe, as well as for times of war, which I mean, we're basically talking about the same day at this. I mean, we're always in war and peace, you know, when we're from this analogy, you know, and we're in fraud in online anyway. And being able to have that flexibility to be able to do do both is a really interesting reflection. And I just knowing you as I do, I knew that you would have at least one off moment that you could share that had to do with fraud because I mean I think all of us right it's inevitable (laughs) I did the same thing so (laughs) not judging but then when you returned back from your epic vacation you sent me an email with some feedback about previous episodes I did that I really appreciated I am lucky enough to hear from a lot of listeners and and oftentimes it's oh my gosh I really love it and I appreciate those so much but sometimes I can't act on them. I can't do anything more to make it better or have different content or things like that. And so I really appreciated the fact that you put some thought into it and provided some different perspective. And so I'd rather have you explain what you said in that email and why you felt it was important. So I spent a six hour drive just listening to Fridology episodes in a row because during September I fully disconnected, which included putting Fridology aside for a minute. But then That's forgiven I, and also very yeah. impressive. I mean, I was recording episode of, you know, why? So the opposite of me. (laughs) Yeah. I remember those intros. So those were like, oh, I'm in Maui. Right. I'm in the condo in my daughter's room. Well, everyone is out at the pool on the beach. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) For my life. But that, so late September, I, I got back. I listened to pretty much most of the September episodes in a row. And I think first thing I wanted to tell you just how awesome that was to just listen to all of them and what, like how much you're contributing just to our industry and this community, because it was just amazing to listen to episodes, helping people think about what to do when they lose their job, when they're looking for a new job. And then when I listened to your two episodes about 
Merchants are for Mars, vendors are for Venus, which is, by the way, such an amazing title. <laughs> like, the, like the game on the alliteration there is so good. Uh, I can't do it all the time, but when I can, I get very excited. <laughs> and it, then I'm it, like, going to do part three and part 33 and part, I'll just keep using it. But thank you. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was lis- listening to those two episodes and during one of them, you kind of caught yourself and said, oh, I think most of my talking points here are to vendors, yeah. which makes sense, right? Like you're voicing the voice of the merchants, but it got me thinking, yeah, so if I were to try and say something, not to the vendors, but to the merchants, what could they take away and think about when they're having these conversations? What would I say? So by the time I got back home, I had to list in my head. I sat down, I wrote it and, and wanted to share it with you. So, And then I said, it. will you come on the podcast and share it with you? Because I'm either going to read yeah. through it and give you credit, but I'd rather have the conversation with you. Yeah. And I really appreciated it. And I did recognize that because the first version I tried to be very very agnostic in a way. And I think part of it is because I had done a survey, you know, and sent it out to a lot of people. And I think there were a couple more merchants that filled it out than vendors, but not a lot. And so I could really see like, you know, they'd be talking about incessant emails and the vendor would say, just write me back, please. And the merchant would say, just leave me alone. And so I can see both sides. It's almost not being like a UN negotiator by any means, you know, like something, I I don't know the right analogy, but I really understand both sides of the issue. And it's almost as if they're speaking different languages. And so the first one, I I was really trying hard to be like pragmatic and, and be very balanced. And the second one, you know, and I reflected on that after I realized, you know, I think it was like the second part. I was like, oh, this is all vendor. And so why do I have, you know, but I do think it, the title still fits, right? Because the reason why I share all those things is because vendors don't really understand merchants and vice versa. In thinking about it, and I've gotten a couple other notes from other vendors in the space providing similar feedback, not well. Nobody gave me a seven point list of specific things that they should do because you're the overachiever. And I appreciate that greatly. Again, it's the difference between a fraud fighter and a vendor. But in thinking about it, there were a couple of things. One was I have been immersed in the merchant world so much more in the last few months and between going to conferences and having collaboration calls. And this is coming up incessantly and I am having, I'm getting emails and calls. I think I mentioned at some point in an episode where I had a friend that sent a screenshot to me of their call history from a solution provider who had scanned their badge at a conference and they were calling them for times in an hour every day and leaving two minute voicemails that weren't like, hey, how are you doing? What, you know, I really want to talk to you. It was just like, this is how our product works and this is why we're the best. And I think that was probably an SDR and I have my own thoughts about that that I provide. A few of my clients have heard that speech, but I think that that was where I was coming from, right? And hearing those horror stories, you hear those enough that you're like, okay, I just knock it off. And the reason why I'd say knock it off is not because I don't want them to do business. It's actually because it's... They are cutting off their noses by their face, right? They're they're doing it to themselves. And you guys, stop complaining that nobody's going to write you back because you're not doing it the right way. But the other reason why I had a hard time giving advice to merchants at that point is because I had just recently had a conversation with... 
really awesome merchant or fintech slash merchant side. And they were saying how they had listened to that first vendors and merchant episode and how they had taken the advice I had given to merchants about responding and just saying, hey, we're not interested right now or this isn't the right time and putting up those boundaries because that's what the vendors were asking for. That is what continually hear them say is we just need to know, right? We just need to put a note in Salesforce. We just need to be able to tell our boss where it's at. We just need to know. And if it's no, just tell me. But unfortunately, they said that had actually made some things worse. And that doesn't mean that everybody is like that. But then I'm like, well, shoot. I mean, I feel bad giving advice in a way because if it's going to backfire on you, I mean, it's got to be a two way street. Right. And obviously not every salesperson's listening to my podcast, but it just made me feel like, oh, maybe I gave the wrong advice or maybe, you know, and so I think that was the other reason why I hesitated to really go into that side. But I don't think I did anything. You know, I'm not saying I'm not apologizing, but I am just explaining. And I think that is very worthy to have an episode where we talk about what can buyers do, right? Like what, what should they do? Because nobody teaches a class on any of this. I mean, there are plenty of sales classes on that side for vendors, right? And half of them are more than half of them are just garbage for our industry. And if you want to know more about that, go back and listen to that episode because I think I shared that a lot. But I think that nobody teaches a class or has a book on how to be a buyer in SaaS technology or how to balance it. And as I say many, many times, most buyers for fraud technology and payments as well. But payments actually has a little bit more of an allowance for hours spent selecting the right payment provider. Fraud really doesn't. And so it's like a very small percentage of their job. But if they're getting four calls a day from the same company and there are 40 companies that desperately want their business, that's insane. And the buyer's timeline is not the seller's timeline. And so being understanding and respectful of that is important for when the buyer does have that timeline. But all of that said, what I asked is that you kind of shared your seven points and we'll kind of talk about them a little bit here and there. And before you start, I wanted to ask if if they're in any particular order. Is this the number one reason, the number two reason, or is it just these are bullet points. They're in the order that came to my mind. So there, there might be like a subconscious type of order in there, but but it's not something <laughs> I, I wasn't thinking about them in a specific order. I yeah. do want to make sure to mention that this is my perspective as a buyer and as someone who consulted some buyers over the last year, not as a vendor, right? Like I'm not yes. trying to represent, this is the vendor's perspective <laughs> of what we would like buyers to do. This is more like, these are things I wish someone would have told me because it would have made the first two years of my time as a buyer go a bit more easily and mm-hmm. better. So it's more from that type of experience. Well, and that's why I wanted you on, right? Because I think I, I could certainly take my pick of, you know, someone on the other side who would love to come and say all the things, but you have the perspective of a buyer, both operationally, as well as from a consultant perspective. And I know from my own experience in that as well, and advising companies, you know, and selecting the right solution provider for specific problems that we actually have a pretty good view of a lot of different do's and don'ts <laughs> on both sides in those processes. So yeah, I think that that's a good call out and important to understand context, right? You're not coming from a position of, I've never been here, but this is what I wish you'd do. It's, hey, I've been here and this is what I wish I knew before. And that's always what I, I want to share on Fraudology, right? Anytime anyone can learn from a mistake or a lesson that I've had, I consider that mistake or a lesson to have value. So yeah, yeah. or experience even, right? Loop it experience too, right? You're saving them from having to have the same experience and yeah, not to say- Shorten someone else's learning curve. Yeah, 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 yeah. Shorten someone else's learning curve. Yeah. 
I think that's a good way of saying it. Yeah. And not that they have to do everything the way we say or that works, but it just gives another perspective and thought. So with that said, I'll let you kind of read the first one and we'll talk about it a little bit and go through. But I think this is a very good put together list and very thoughtful. And so I think it'll have a lot of value. My first point is, as a buyer, remember that you're in charge of the process, which means it should work at your pace and based on your needs. So it's a very common sales tactic, not just in our industry, but just generally to try and create a sense of urgency, right? Mm. That's something you like salespeople learn very early on in their Mm -hmm. career. You need to create a sense of urgency because that helps push to a decision. But that also means that you might get pushed to try and like towards making a decision before you are ready to make that decision, before you've done your full diligence, before you've reach your comfort level or anything like that. And I think like buyers just need to remember that they don't need to. That is usually a false sense of urgency. So sometimes that urgency is by telling you that they want an answer sooner rather than later or things like that, which is great that that's what they need. That's what they want. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that works with your timeline. Another option is sometimes they'll offer you discounts if we close, if we close this contract by or before or anything like that. And while that's fair, sometimes those discounts are meaningful because it's the end of the year and this, like they're trying to make their numbers for the year or the quarter or something like that, where they can give bigger discounts. That doesn't mean you need to take them. Usually if those are very meaningful discounts, that means you can get a decent proportion of that just by asking, even if it's your, a week or two weeks past the deadline. And if those are not that meaningful discounts, then even if you lose out on it, it's not such a big deal. Right. In a way, when they do that, they're kind of showing their hand, right? Because they can play with, you're like, oh, you're playing with the margins. Okay. Well, if exactly. you're willing to go down that low before December 31st, we can probably get pretty close to that in February. I agree with that. I think that sense of urgency and boundaries is important for both sides to hear. I heard a couple of recent stories, especially, and I know it's because solution providers and vendors are really getting called a lot by their investors and they've got a lot of pressure on their shoulders and I have a lot of empathy for that. However, they are, again, hurting themselves. Situations where, you know, especially if you have, you know, sales SDRs, right? So sales development reps, that's often common in SaaS technology. It's somebody who's reaching out and kind of getting the initial conversation going. And some companies have their SDRs really understand fraud or they come from fraud. And so they can have those use case conversations. Others really can't. It's become very clear to several merchants that I've talked to recently that there must be some kind of incentive structure or something, a lot of pressure, even when the merchant is like, hey, I have so many other fires right now. And while yes, your solution would help one of them, it's a very small fire and I have to prioritize. I can't talk about this for six months. And then a week later, hey, we just wanted to see if you want to have a meeting. Can we get a meeting scheduled? When can we have a meeting? It's, oh my goodness. And in one case, it went from a merchant who had full intention of working with that vendor down the line to being like, I I can't. And that stinks because I got to know some of the people personally and I like them, but like I I can't introduce them to my company if they can't even respect my first boundary. I can't bring them in. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, 
other than a small oily fish in the herring family. Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other people business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. In most of these cases, we're talking about long sales cycles. Mm. So if the vendor isn't going to end up talking to one person in your company, they're going to end up talking to a bunch of people in your company. You're the first person they talk to. You're the mm. gatekeeper, which as fraud prevention people, we're used to being the gatekeeper. And we take it seriously. Right. Yep. But yeah, we are. <laughs> uh, but if they are showing their hand in a way where you're not going to trust them to respect other people in your company, you're not going to trust them to have a good process with you, then that might not be a great fit for what you're trying to do, even if it's just a culture fit more than product fit. Yeah. But I think to circle back to where I was starting from, it's like more just from a merchant perspective, The just remember you're in charge. That mm -hmm. They might be like in charge of how much they call you, but you're in charge of when you actually make decisions and what are the mm -hmm. decisions you make. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's good to communicate the timeline and try to be responsive when you are past the initial, hey, let's get a meeting, right? Once you've had a meeting, then it's okay. Be respectful. Something came up. We're going to have to push this, et cetera. But the other side also has to realize, okay, I need to respect that. And I've heard some people do it well. Okay. I understand you're busy. Like, when would you like me to contact you? That works really well. And I've seen buyers, whether it's the merchant side, the fintech side, the bank side, whatever side it is, notice that because it's, it's different than what a lot of other people do. So yeah, I think communicating that timeline and you brought up such a good point where if you are not respecting my boundaries, how do I know that you're not going to harass the heck out of my boss and my boss's boss? And they're going to come down on me and go, why did you think these guys were good? Because they are calling me all the time and emailing me all the time. And I have 50 million things. And by the way, like I've had to have 
a few conversations recently with vendors, you know, a couple of them clients of mine that I advise in this way, being some of them have a playbook of we need to have the highest executive we can. We need to know who do they report to, who do they report to, who do they report to. And some of them respect that. They're not calling them and disparaging the first the gatekeeper. They're, they're not calling them and trying to pitch to them right away, but they want to have that because their CEO wants to be able to have a conversation, CEO to COO or CEO to CFO at some point to kind of, you know, seal the deal. And when I was talking to a merchant about that the other day, they were like, what a lot of these fraud vendors don't understand. My VP of product or my, you know, COO does not care about trust and safety or identity or fraud. I mean, they, that's what they pay me for. They don't want to know you. They want me to deal with you. And so that's the other thing too, right? Is while there might be other people brought into the conversations for decision-making, that does not mean that they all really care. A lot of times they're like, no, I trust that person. That's your main point person. You don't need our whole you know, chain of command. Yeah, I, I think a lot of vendors are basically startups mm-hmm. these, these yes. days. Yeah, and, and, yeah and, that's exactly why. <laughs> and startups right. are used to having like that C-level to C-level conversation. And sometimes you forget that it's not about who is the C-level, it's who is the decision maker. Yes. And you don't need to get past the decision maker. All you need to do is get to the decision maker, and but you also need to respect their time. And I think that kind of ties to my next point, yeah. which is that as a buyer, you need to remember that you're allowed to ask for anything you want. You are the decision maker or the gatekeeper. You can ask, right? Like vendors would prefer to know what you need than to be in the dark and then just lose the sale, right? So if they can't do it, they'll say no. As long as you're respectful, as long as you ask nicely, you can ask for free trials. You can ask for a discount on the proof of concept timeframe. You can ask for lower prices that fit your budget. All of those are very, very legitimate things to ask for as part of your process. And you should trust your vendors that they will not do a business where they can't do it. And they would also not kill a sales conversation just because you've made an ask that they Mm -hmm. can't offer. They'll let you know. They want your business. And usually they also have quite meaningful room for negotiation between what is their standard offer and where they are willing to get to over time or Mm -hmm. at the end of the process. And some vendors are notorious for starting from a very high pricing point and they have a a lot of room for negotiation. So if you don't try to negotiate some of them, that means you're paying a lot more than someone across the street from you. I have heard examples of this so many times. Yes. And other merchants offer you their best offer from the start. And if like you will try to negotiate with them, they will nicely tell you no, this yeah. is our offer. And if you want it, great. And if you don't want it, that's fair, but that's what we can offer you. But either way, no one will take offense if you ask, right? Yeah. If you tell them what you need, what you're looking for, as long as you're doing things nicely, it is fair game. Yeah. And when it comes to pricing and all that and discounts and POCs and all of that, Another thing I've noticed, speaking of a lot of the vendors in this space being startups, it really depends on where they are in their business and what their business goals are. Because in some cases, if they are around like pre-seed or seed, the revenue may not be the driving factor. It could be getting the business, getting the transaction numbers, getting the account numbers, getting the API call numbers up. It could be getting a proof of concept that they can share with other buyers from a success Right, right. Hey, we worked with this company and we were able to do that and that. So, you know, there's also wiggle room to say, hey, 
we are willing, and, and that's always about your company policy. There are some companies that never, ever, ever do this, but like we're willing to have you have our logo on your website. We are willing to do a case study with you that you can publish. What are you going to knock off for that? Or talk to your marketing department or at other stages in our business. It is all about the revenue and the numbers and all of that, you know, later on, like in series A, B and, and C and all that. So knowing that can help too in the pricing negotiation, knowing what's important to the vendor at the stage of the their business is something that I've learned kind of by default by advising vendors in different stages of their business and realizing, okay, well, right now they're willing to basically give this for free because they need design partners and they want to be able to validate that their product and their service works. But later on, but, and that comes with some risks, right? For the buyer, but it can be a very worthwhile because you can also, during that time, if you're in a design partnership or a beta test or whatever they call it, you're able to kind of customize it to your needs as well. And and the one other thing I was going to extend this to when you say that, like to remember that you're allowed to ask for anything you want and you're in the driver's seat, that goes for product features as well. Not to say that, hey, can you change this whole thing? But is this possible? I know of a few cases where when the buyer asked for that, it was the best thing for the solution provider because there was no other solution out for that problem. And now they can go evangelize it everywhere that they they have this thing and basically the merchant helped them build what they needed. Or maybe it's a, a great tool, but it doesn't have a great UI or great case management system or things like that. So in addition to price, it's also about product fit and hey, it'd be great. And yeah, the worst thing they can do is say no. Cases like that where I, I would say we changed the trajectory of the vendor, but we wanted like they didn't have a download option for a table that we wanted. We asked if they could put like just download to hey. Excel, tiny button, but made my team's life a lot easier. Yeah. Took them like a, a couple of weeks just from the development cycle. Very easy work on their side. Great. Now they have one more tiny feature in their website. We loved it. They, they were perfectly fine with it. That's great. Yeah. I, so I fully agree with that. I think tied to something else you said is you need to understand, in some cases, you need to understand where the vendor is at and what are they looking for. And, and I think what you said about sometimes just putting your logo on their website is huge for them. Sometimes being a design partner is huge for them. Sometimes they're building a consortium and they want you to yes. tell them after the fact who was really fraud and who wasn't. And that can take 60% off of your pricing. Um, yeah, data is gold or data is the new oil or whatever. And right, you're absolutely right. If there's a consortium model or anything like that, they want as much of that as possible. Definitely. And that ties to my next point, which is remember to ask around, right? Mm -hmm. With most vendors, you're not going to be their first customer. Uh, if you're a design partner, that's not, not necessarily going to be true, but the vast majority of vendors you're talking to, they're not their first customer. Right. Don't be shy about asking people in your network, people. And I would assume for people who are buyers, usually they are at the stage where they're managers, usually you have connections in the industry. You have other people in your network that if you don't, I highly recommend it. It is yes. one of the most valuable <laughs> ways of becoming very good at your job. But don't be shy about asking people if they've heard about those vendors, if they evaluated them, if they have any experiences that they're willing to share. Sometimes there are NDAs, they can't share it. Sometimes there are, sometimes they, they've heard from other friends and they, but feedback you can get from your network is very valuable. And if you don't have that, you also shouldn't be shy about asking vendors for referral calls. They have customers. Those will probably be like their best customers and the ones that will give them reference. But even that, you get to talk to someone who has boots on the ground and is using this product and usually is from our industry and therefore will have some sort of connection with you. And the worst thing that will happen is you've made a connection. 
Right. So well said. I will say that I've been kind of surprised sometimes those type of referral calls where a solution provider has a list of companies that have said, sure, yeah, I can give a referral here or there. And sometimes they're painfully honest. And I don't think that the solution provider knew that that was going to be the case, right? But in other cases, that is where sometimes their website is helpful because of the logos on the website. You go, oh, okay, who do I know there? Or put it in LinkedIn. And okay, we have a shared connection. I can probably reach out and say, hey, we're looking at these guys. Actually, I just did that for a client of mine recently where someone else with it in their situation, I've never seen so many other departments trying to get involved in fraud. Usually it's, I don't want anything to do with it. But in this case, it's like a weird turf war or something. It's strange. But somebody else in the company who thought they knew more than the person that had had decades of experience in the industry, did their own research and and found a vendor they thought would work. And the fraud person reached out to me and was like, hey, can you do a little bit of digging for us? And it's part of our contract, blah, blah, blah. And I did. I knew of a couple of companies that I thought used that vendor, but I wasn't sure. It'd been a while. So I went to the website and two of the companies that I reached out to, they had never heard of that solution provider. They do not know why their logo is on their website. That is not the first time I've heard of that. There's also situations where buyers in the contract say you cannot use our logo and maybe it's not publicly on their website, but it's on their pitch deck or it's somewhere else. And I've heard horror stories of people who have an existing relationship with, you know, Merchant A, right? And they put their logo on their slide deck, kind of the, the first slide deck that introduces their company to people, right? Like we work with all these companies and they'll be pitching to that merchant or they'll be showing them a slide deck to that merchant and they'll see their own logo on there and be like, you're... A, you're bragging to us about us using you, but two, who else are you showing this to? Like, this isn't okay. So definitely playing by those rules are important because that also gets around. Those are also things that buyers tell people. I don't know how our logo, like we don't work with them. I don't know how our logo got on there. That's weird. Or maybe a very small subsidiary that doesn't work with us ever, that isn't even really our company. They have a totally different brand, but they're owned by us in some way. And we're a bigger brand. Maybe that's it. But like I've asked seven people in our company, nobody's heard of them. That can also hurt your reputation because people are going to assume that they use you. And so they'll reach out to them. I have had mixed feelings about having merchant or fintech brands on solution provider websites, mostly because we know that some of the most sophisticated fraudsters love to do their research. But at the same time, like because of GDPR, because of CCPB in California, that already has to be disclosed in their terms and conditions now who they're sharing the data with. So I'm not as critical about that anymore. But there was a situation a decade ago I don't think I might have mentioned this once on one episode randomly, but like there was a solution provider that almost every company in one vertical worked with. And that was very well known, whether it was retail or travel or whatever, those kind of verticals. And they suffered a DDoS attack, that vendor itself. And during that half an hour of DDoS attack, guess how much fraud got through (laughs) on, on those exact merchants that are all over their website. And now that was 10 years ago and a lot has changed. And actually, whether it's for the better or the worse, and it's not totally because of that, but other things too, that a lot of their clients at the time moved on to other providers. But just one example of I've been critical of that before, but at this point, I'm like, well, you can find it in the terms and conditions. You can also see it in the log, you know, of where your data goes. So yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, but but I think a general advice to vendors is if you want to use a logo, maybe ask for permission. Yes. Right. Like the, the, don't just say, oh, I think this is okay. I'm going to put it on our website. Make sure that someone in that company said, yes, this is okay. We, we're going to back that. And the same thing is true for references. I think what you said is very true. You're a vendor. <laughs> you want to make sure that whoever you're giving out is references going to give a good a reference. happy customer. Yeah. Yeah. But you should also remember that if you're having them talk to other people from their own industry, they're probably at the very least going to be quite honest. Yes. So. So you should be ready for that. And I've served as a reference for vendors yeah. I was very happy with. And, and I think I did them a good service. But I was also like very honest about what is working great for us and why we value it. And where are we not using it? Because it's not as useful. And I think I think that's a good reference call. But vendors should know what they're getting. Yeah. Um, and that goes back to the fact that we need to continue to cater to your customers even after the contract is signed, right? But yeah, I think that asking around is so important. Using the the connections in your network already, reaching out, being bold, gaining connections, and and also just yeah, that honesty. I was gonna joke that hell hath no fury like a merchant scorned, you know. And if they're like, oh, all those things, right? But I think that it's also good for buyers to know that that can be a point of leverage. And I think that was where that came from too. Uh, number four, is that where we're on? Four. We're, right. we're at four. And actually four and five are very, now that I look at them, very closely tied. So I'm actually going to talk them? about both of them. Yeah. yeah. So it. my number four is remember that almost no vendor is unique. So almost all of them have a direct competitor. Just because one got on your radar doesn't mean your choice should be this vendor for nothing. It should be this vendor or an alternative to this vendor. And before deciding, you should explore what else is in the market. You should do some market research about who are the other vendors. If you've decided to address a gap or work, like enhance some of your capabilities, you shouldn't just talk to the one that managed to get through to you. I know that that's something that vendors probably would appreciate less, but from a buyer's perspective, it's very important to have a comparison point. And that comparison point shouldn't just be our existing vendor that we're already working with or this new vendor or this new vendor or nothing. It should be what is available. And that ties to the next point, which is remember that your time is also valuable. So evaluating vendor takes time and effort. If this is a true pain point for your team, make sure you believe the time you're going to spend is worth it, but also try and evaluate multiple vendors at the same time. So the evaluation process of a vendor is probably the most important part of understanding what's the value that they're giving you, because that's how you decide if the price that they're going to ask you to pay for it is worth the value that they're going to bring. If the time it's going to take you to integrate with them or to build them into your work processes is worth it. So if the evaluation part is critical and no vendor is unique, try and get multiple vendors and try and time things so that you're evaluating them at the same time and can compare them head to head with each other and with whatever you have that is that's your existing defenses. I think that served me extremely well throughout my time as a buyer. And I think some of the most regrettable purchases we've made were cases where someone got on our radar and we said, oh, this is amazing. And just went with it without checking who else is on the market. And then we learned that vendor wasn't necessarily at the top of what they're doing. And the best ones were when we compared two, three different companies, went to the other and were able to make very concrete decisions. 
And how did the length of those contracts compare from when you just looked at one provider and didn't do a market analysis, which can take time? I'm hopeful that there will be more resources out there for that. But right now it's kind of choose your own adventure in some ways. But comparing the times when you just kind of went with who you were talking to and this should solve our problems versus when you really did a market analysis, was there a difference in how long you worked with each of those companies? So... I think that the difference is more tied to to the true quality of what they were giving. But the bigger part where there was, where I saw a difference between if I've made that like more robust evaluation than than the lighter one is the feeling of buyer remorse. Mm. And how often did I go and evaluate other vendors, even if my contract was still ongoing? Uh So if I did a strong evaluation at the onset, sometimes that meant for two, three years, I wouldn't talk to another vendor in the space because I felt like I did my job. I made my choice. I'm very comfortable with it. I know exactly what, what the value is that I'm getting, I will think about it when either we we see a major gap or when it becomes a bit older. And then in cases where I didn't do that, then we moved a bit faster. Sometimes six months later, I was already talking to other vendors and trying to see, okay, what else is in the market? Who can close like this additional gap that this vendor didn't fully close for me? They or even if they, they did, but they didn't, right. Or or even if just someone, like, because I didn't do any market research, someone reached out to me and said, hey, we also have a solution for this. Did you consider us? Would you want to see what we're doing? And then, like more often than not, if I had the time for it, I would say yes, because I didn't do the market research to, mm. to begin with. I think that's such a good point. I think that the problem is that fraud moves so fast, right? And so a lot of us have this sense of urgency, like, okay, I need to close this gap. I need to do that. And that's partially why one of the many points of my whole zombie analogy is continually thinking about what you're going to need down the road and not just how to patch this hole now. I mean, almost every merchant consulting contract I've done has had a short-term goal and a long-term goal. Or, okay, how are we going to patch these holes short-term? And then how are we going to manage this long-term? And when we're thinking about the long term, what are we going to see when this vulnerability is closed? What's going to be next? Or what tools can serve multiple purposes? Back to your castle ruins analogy, right? With flexibility and which solutions will become more like a multi-purpose tool than just a pocket knife and which ones are the right fit. And I think to your point, it's Good to have confidence in that. There are some company policy comes into play at some of these, especially for like some of the companies that have been around for decades and decades that weren't digital first, right? So especially like in my world, it's the retailers that were brick and mortar for 50 years. They have policies. And in some cases, I was talking to one the other day who said, who else does, you know, what these guys do? And I'm like, oh, I think, you know, these guys, these guys. Well, because I'm pretty sure I want to go with those guys, but it's a company policy that I have to talk to three. And is that fair to the solution providers? Maybe not. But that just because they have a winning horse when they first get in does not mean that's who they're going to go with at the end. I mean, bring your A game, right? I think vendors were confident in their product mind this as much, right? Because they will tell you, put me against anyone. Like, yeah, we are up to par, if not better. We yeah, will, hopefully the vendors done their homework, we know right? How to negotiate they know how they compare. Yeah. Right. So, and, yeah. Yeah. And some of them have slides about this. This is yeah. how we compare it to the rest of the market. This is why we're unique or better. Or so. I have 
helped them yeah. with some of those stories. Which is what they should do. I agree. Um, but also loved your point about having the measurements and knowing have, what are you trying to get from this? And I think that is very closely tied to my next point, which is these are meaningful decisions mm -hmm. for buyers, right? You, you don't get the resources and the time to switch vendors very often. No. You, or, and you definitely don't do that casually. And that means that you should think it through in terms of what are you looking for? What do you need to see from a trial from a proof of concept. What is the price point that makes sense to you in terms of in terms of the gap you're closing, right? What's the value of it? When will you have integration resources, right? If you need developers on your side to help with this work, they will only be available in November and we're at the beginning of October, then that you need to be aware of that. Mm -hmm. If they'll only be available in March, you also need to be aware of that because then it's a very different conversation. And that also um, goes back to owning the timeline and being communicative about it, right? <laughs> exactly. But knowing what those measurements are that you're trying to see from the vendor and what's the price point that you are comfortable with really helps you in, in the negotiation phase. Because you can say, look, you're closing all of my gaps. This is how much I'm willing to pay for that. Or you can wait and get their offer. If their offer is below what you're willing to pay for that, that's great. And if, if it's not, then you know, you know what will get you ready to buy. Yeah, those are all really good points. I think along with you know, the implementation speed and all of that, depending again on where the business, it, where the solution provider is in their stages, I have seen some solution providers say, hey, we can actually bring in our own developer and connect this, connect you to the API. Now, obviously you need to talk to your company because sometimes that's not okay. But other times they're like, yes, please. And they'll fly them in and do it. But make sure that they're not going to charge you for that because I've also heard of at least one situation where a, a vendor said, hey, we'll come in and help with the implementation. We'll train your whole team on how to use the system. And then they got a bill for $30,000 that they weren't expecting. And that's not really a good way to start a relationship. And all of those little dings like that from that kind to your point where if you don't do your homework, then you know, you're going to be more likely to not be as loyal. Well, that all also goes back to the reference, right? So that's why solution providers should continually, and I see this way too often, continually manage that relationship and continually make sure they're happy because especially if they are a buyer that is very active in their industry, you want them to be your number one fan. You want them when there's a merchant only or a fintech only or whatever it is, broom conversation, which I am so fortunate to get to host so many and I love them so much because there's so many more things that are shared and it's just, it's really fun. You want someone that's a champion and that doesn't say, because oftentimes they'll be like, hey, does anyone work with so-and-so? Do they really do this? Or how do they, just those kind of things that, that can come up. But the other thing I was going to say, too, is there are newer solutions out there. In fact, you and I are kind of talking about a couple of them right before we recorded that are providing a service to allow no code implementations where they connect to the merchant and you need to do your homework because some of them still have an API from the, from the buyer to them, but then they're connected with a lot of the other platforms and stuff. So you only have one API. I know that when Carl, the CEO and co-founder of Spec, formerly SpecTrust, he talked about how they connect via the CDN, the contact content delivery network. That's about the extent of my engineering verbiage, but where they actually go out and connect to you, you don't need engineering resources. So understanding the newer technology that's out there where if, oh my goodness, we have this huge gap and it's costing us X, 
but I can't get engineering resources till March. Well, let's think outside the box. That's one of my favorite things to do. And I know it's one of your favorite things to do too with clients. There's a writer that, well, I mean, she's like a entrepreneurial person. A lot of women follow her, whatever. Marie Forleo, her book is titled Everything is Figureoutable. And that's one of my mantras. I say it all the time. My hu- I've heard my husband start saying it. And I'm like, yes. But it just reminds me when I'm like, oh, how am I going to get this done? How is this going to happen? And I mean, I always joke that as a single mom, raising a child that had all these after school things and, and the logistics of that, because I'd have to go on a work trip or I'd have to you know work like that trained me for figuring out how to solve problems that seem impossible and to be pretty resourceful. So everything is figure outable. It's just a matter of finding out the right information. That's also where communicating internally with your company and saying, hey, if we don't implement this by this date, this is what could happen. And having those metrics, having those dollars, having the way to measure the performance before and after the vendor, that might sound like no duh to a lot of people listening. But there's also a lot of them that don't have that. I'm part of a WhatsApp group of a whole bunch of merchants that talk to each other. I love it. I mute. Well, I don't know. Sometimes I'm just a fly on the wall. Other times somebody will tag me or other times I just give unsolicited advice. But, you know, someone the other day was asking, well, how do we how do we calculate our core metrics? Because we're looking at other solutions, but we don't even know where we're at. That's really important to do, because how do you know how helpful the vendor is if you don't know where you were beforehand? I totally agree. I think tracking your metrics is critical. And that actually is precisely my last point, which is (laughs) what, especially in the evaluation part, right? If my previous recommendation was know what you're looking for from the vendor and quantify it, once you quantify it, that also helps you with the internal buy-in. Take that, use that information with your internal team. So when you find the vendor that you like, you'll be able to say, yes, this is the value they're giving us. This is why they're worth it. This is why I need them. This is why it's worth the implementation effort. And make sure that you have that, right? That is such a strong tool internally. And it's such a strong capability when you're talking to the vendor to know that you have that internal buy-in in your back pocket if they can just reach that level that you're trying to get to. It also helps, if we said before, your time is valuable. Like mm-hmm. that helps make sure that you're not wasting time doing evaluations of vendors and then you're taking it up the chain and someone comes in and says, well, I don't see the value. So no, or we don't have the budget right now. Yeah. We have other priorities. Make sure you get that buy-in as much as early in the process as you can. Yeah. Otherwise you're leaving them on, right? And you're also wasting your time. As you said, like it's important to be communicative with other parts of the business that need to be involved. The way I've run it before is, hey, let's get all the stakeholders into a room now before like who needs to sign off on a new solution? Okay, well, let's let's have a meeting with them. Let's explain to them the reason why we need this, what we're looking for, why it's important and show the numbers there they are now. And When available, and this is a challenge that I'm hoping to contribute to bridging a gap, there's not always good benchmarks out there. But, you know, if you're able to say, hey, similar companies to ours have this and we're over here. Or if our for merchants, it's let's look at the balance of our approval rate versus our chargeback rate. And that can really tell you the gap between those two of how many orders are we declining, essentially, or how many orders are we letting through versus how many chargebacks are we getting back, especially true fraud. That can help you know, we probably have high false positives. We're probably declining too much or, oh, we're not declining enough or, oh, we're just right. That can really help you. You need, when you're flying a plane, you need to have so many different sensors, right? For everything. Kind of need that for this too. The analogy is, is perfect, right? Like this, this day and age, you can't fly 
lane without a massive amount of data at your service. And that's what you're trying to do right here, right? Like you're trying to get it off the ground and you try to keep it in the air. Yeah. Yeah. It totally just came to me right this second, but I felt like it was appropriate. The one other tip that I wanted to add to your list, I think your list was amazing. One that I think bears saying, and I don't, I'm at like around 130 episodes at this point. So sometimes I'm like, I probably said it at some point, but it's worth repeating and not everybody listens to every episode. But sometimes I'm like, oh, am I repeating myself? But don't select a vendor just because so-and-so uses them. That is a mistake I see happen a lot, at least on the e-commerce side. I don't know if you see that as much on the fintech side. Yeah, we definitely see that on the fintech side too. You definitely do. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I know that that's also something that, you know, solution providers do too. And it's a point of pride for them. And that's great. And that's worth, you know, talking about. But at the same time, my dog agrees, by the way. Uh, Actually, I think he wants to go outside soon, but, you know, tell him it almost. I've seen it in two different ways. One is, oh, wow, the big guy uses them. We don't have anything. in Our businesses don't have anything in common. But if that brand uses them, they must be good. But you don't know if they have the same issues or the same challenges or the same needs that you do or the same systems or the same company culture or the same products or anything like that, right? The other one I've seen firsthand as a consultant is... Ooh, our competitor uses them so we can use consortium data. And also, oh, our competitor uses them so they must be good. For that specifically, I mean, you are assuming that your competitor knows what they're doing. And I don't mean to be a jerk, but there have been some situations where I'm like, I know the person that made that decision at that solution provider and they are really great at a lot of things, but I don't think they're using that tool the right way. I don't know if they're doing it like just because their logo is on the solution providers vendor, their website does not mean that they like it. It doesn't mean that it works for them. They may not know where their metrics fall or anything like it's just very because this industry is still emerging. It's very subjective. And so that's something that I don't think that fraud people really care about as much. But oftentimes when you get up higher in the business, whether it's like the e-commerce director or the digital director or operations or whoever is like, well, why don't we just pick whoever they use? Well, pull up. So that's was one that I felt was, would be super important as well as trying to ha- keep a good relationship with solution providers while also providing your boundaries. I think that's important, right? Because you may need to reach out to them, you know, soon or or you may not, but, or they might go to a company that you work with and you're going to have to see them every, at every event. It's a really small industry and we all have long memories. So it's important to be kind, even if they're being borderline stalkerish. <laughs> well, yeah. maybe if they're being borderline stalkerish, maybe you can be a little more firm and strict on that. And also, by the way, I think I probably said this in the other episode, like merchants have gotten pretty good at blocking domains and that has impacted some salespeople. So beware. But I think your points are great. I think for the first one, the way I would look at this is if one of my recommendations was get references or referrals mm-hmm. and talk to people in the industry, that's probably better than just hopping, saying who who do they have a logo of? Because you don't know if they're really using them. You don't know if they're happy using them. And you don't know if they're doing, if those are actually teams that you trust the teams that are using them. However, when you're going to convince people and Mm, get by internally, if you can definitely (laughs) use that, right? Like you can say, oh yes, this vendor, this, this, and this are using them. Or if you've had reference calls, you can say, oh, I talked to someone at this company and they're loving it. It, 
that goes a long way. As, yes. Yeah. Again, especially with people who are higher up from fraud, right? Yep. We are inherently skeptical. And I've used that more than a few times. Oh, I was doing research. I talked to so-and-so at this place and they really liked it. Oh, or, oh, that it's validation, right? I think the bigger challenge when you're talking to people that are maybe like tangential to fraud or a little bit outside of it is they're just like, oh, they're all the same, right? So just pick one. And so trying to also in that internal discussions and in those internal communications, explaining to them that this is what we're looking for. They have this, but not this. And I've created like tables to be able to compare it. And this is why this part is important. Um, and this is why this part's important. And this is what we need. And I think that goes a long way. And it also builds a lot of trust internally in your company because they're like, yeah. okay, you did your homework. You did your research. You're walking us through why, you know, and you can start off with three companies as you're presenting it to them, but kind of, you know, nudge towards the one yeah. that you think is right throughout what you provide and let the data speak for itself even more than just, oh, I really liked the person that I talked to. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that's very fair. And, and I love your other point about just Try to be nice and keep good relationships. I know sometimes it's hard as a buyer, like you get so many incoming mm. asks for your time for evaluating their and product. It's urgent well, to that person's uh, job to get you to yeah. do it now. And so sometimes it's a lot. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And for that, maybe I think one thing that we didn't touch on, but you, I think you kind of talked about it before. And I think even in the previous episode, canned responses can be your friend, right? Like if, <laughs> if you need to answer to a lot of people, the same type of answer, don't be afraid to use canned responses because they prefer to get an answer Something. that tells them, yes. look, this is no, and this is not, doesn't mean they'll, they'll all respect it. Doesn't mean they'll all listen to you, but at the very least you gave them a signal of I've received your email. I'm mm -hmm. the right person to get this email. You don't need to go emailing when the other Very people in my company. Point. Yes. And we are not going to be moving forward with this anytime in the near future. That is a very fair response. You write it for yourself once and then you use that over and over again. I mean, that's a really good point. And to be honest, I mean, that's really what is done on the other side all the time, right? Yes. And how many times have we gotten a dear insert name here? Or <laughs> my favorite one the other day was, you know, we know that we can provide consulting with great data analytics on their fraud. And I'm like, hmm, yeah, my name is, that. or no, just consultant. And I was like, hmm, okay. I think they meant to put charge analytics, you know, yep. I mean, so that's an indicator, right? That a lot of them, and that's, that makes sense, right? They need to fish with a net at first and then switch to a pole. So like totally makes sense, but you can do the same thing to your point, turn around, share play, and they're at least getting something back that they're able to update their bosses on, be able to put into their CRM and be able to move forward. Now, if they don't respect that, that is data for you for when it is time to make a decision on a similar tool. I was talking to a merchant a couple of weeks ago who was really frantically wanting to know what other solutions were available in, in a specific area because their current provider was not up to par anymore. So they want to know what else was out there. That is a much longer story to tell on that side of all that they did, which was like everything I would say not to do to your current customers. But they said, who, who should I talk to? Like, who do you think, you know, I should talk to in the space? And so I listed a couple and I said, well, have you thought about this one? And it's kind of their most direct competitor, the one that's like the most similar to them. And they're like, they're not an option. And I said, oh, okay. Curious, like why? Because I'm always collecting data points. And they said, well, three years ago, there was a sales rep that just wouldn't leave me alone. And that was giving me a hard time at a conference because I chose the, chose the competitor. And this is a huge company that I know that that vendor who, you know, they don't use now, but 
would salivate over, especially taking the business from their number one competitor, but also just being able to have a conversation. But they were like, nope, not even an option. I don't even want to know what product they have. And I'm like, well, a lot of companies like in your vertical really like them and like this part and that part. Yep. Don't care. So that data, right? You never know when the buyer is going to have to make a decision. So respecting boundaries is is important and playing the long game ultimately. Yeah. And then don't burn bridges. You don't have to burn. That is one of my mantras as well. Yes. And I think it's served me well, as well as you too. So Gil, I know I could talk to you all night. It is getting so late your time. And I just really appreciate your time and for reaching out to me and your honesty. I just, I also really appreciate you listening to the podcast and being such an awesome supporter. I know that you typically, when you're not on vacation, listen in your morning walks the day that the podcast comes out. Definitely. There's at least three of you who either walk or run while listening to my podcast. My husband cannot understand that because he likes to listen to like loud music with bass when he's running (laughs) and riding his bike. But I I appreciate it so much and it holds me accountable when I'm like, "Uh, I'm not sure if I can get this episode in on time. I'm like, nope, Gil and other people are going to be looking for it at East Coast time that day. So I got to do it. And I appreciate that. (laughs) That's great. I I'm very happy that in some little way I get to help make sure that there are more phrenology episodes for everyone. <laughs> well, yeah. And I know so many people are happy that you stopped back by again because I always have fun talking with you. And I think that a lot comes out of these conversations and I just appreciate it so much. I will, as always, put a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes and description for anyone that wants to reach out to you. And I'm just going to end this episode with gratitude. Thank you so much. And I hope that you stop by soon. Thank you, Bruce. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.